the differentiator is usually between the ears. And there the seems nose? to be. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Welcome to Obstacles and Opportunities with Lowell and Julie. Sharing stories, empowering mindsets. Today's guest is John Montgomery. John is a man of many talents. He is best known as the beloved host of Amazing Race Canada, as well as his gold medal and skeleton from the Vancouver 2010 Olympics and the jug of beer he carried through Whistler Village. John was born in Russell, Manitoba and currently lives in Victoria, BC with his wife Darla, also a skeleton athlete, and their two beautiful kids. In 2016, John co-hosted the Juno Awards with eight-time recipient Jan Arden. In 2016, he also received the Canadian Screen Award for Best Host of a Reality TV Series. 2016 was obviously a good year for him. Perhaps that's because that's the year we were on The Amazing Race Canada? <laughs> and yes, during this conversation, we delve into our shared experiences on The Amazing Race Canada. An auctioneer by trade, John earned his automotive marketing degree from Georgian College. He uses his skills to auction cars to raise funds for charities including Kidsport Canada, Canadian Olympic Foundation, and Right to Play. John is an incredible speaker and an even better man. While we'd prefer to hang out in real life, we are thrilled to Zoom with John. There are some feedback sounds throughout, but just ignore that and pay attention to the brilliant words. <laughs> Hope you enjoy. We have a John Montgomery on screen. Waiting. Woo! I see John. And there he is. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? You're sounding good, John Montgomery, and looking good too, right. sir. Look at that handsome devil. Hang on. I'm going to get a couple lights out. I see it's a little bit dark. How are you guys doing? Well, so good. good. You don't look dark to us, by the way. Maybe it's just your glowing personality. <laughs> <laughs> so it's been going well. I see you guys have done a number of these things already. This will be an old hat for you guys by now. <laughs> well, don't know about that, but yeah, it's been How's fun. How's it been going? You like it? Yeah, it's been really fun. And Lowell taught me the, all the editing process too. So I was just telling him earlier today, I've been thoroughly enjoying every step in this process so far. So. You guys are editing it yourself too? Yeah. Julie's Julie's the editor. I'm doing it all. No way. That's impressive. That is a whole nother level of skill that uh, I can't even begin to <laughs> fathom or get my brain wrapped around. Well, John, mama's got some time on her hands. <laughs> At least you're putting your time to good use and learning some skills. Yeah, that's what I think. <laughs> yeah. Lowell's got a background. His first degree was new media, so... As was it as, really? Yeah, as soon as we started talking about this, he's all, all of a sudden all the best equipment started arriving at our door. <laughs> all the creative juices started yeah. flowing and Amazon was making regular deliveries to your front door with new gear every day. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that everybody's household right now? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, just a steady stream of oh. uh, delivery couriers. It's embarrassing. I try to avoid Amazon, but you can't really. But I heard that Amazon sold out of podcasting equipment in 2020. Yeah. So they we actually got nothing. it straight from the Everybody sources. Everybody looking for a new web camera or microphone or whatever. John, the reason we started this podcast is because we needed another pandemic podcast out there. <laughs> there aren't enough, obviously. No. No. Hey, everybody need. I mean, <laughs> with the amount of extra time we're all spending yeah. at home, we need the extra podcasts to get us through the day. Yeah. <laughs> what sort of podcast do you usually listen to? You know what? I just started listening to them. I, uh, before the old COVID struck, I, I wasn't in the 
the uh, the podcast world, but most of mine right now are rooted in entertainment, taking my mind away from mm-hmm. what is the perpetual hamster wheel of, of terrestrial TV or regular cable news. Mm-hmm. You know, the fear mongering, the daily tolls, the the updates about vaccinations, all that stuff, uh, which is serving me very little these days. Yeah. So I, I'm trying to escape that with some entertainment and enlightenment. Uh, I want to learn about health and wellness and biohacking and uh, optimizing my energy levels with the time that I have available to me in the day. Yeah. I'm not, not digging into the murders. People are all about the, <laughs> the, the murder stories. That and might like, be That's me. just terrifying. You know what will make you feel better? Smartless. Have you heard that one? That's with Sean Hayes, Jason Bateman, and Will Arnett. It's so, ah, it's so funny. Yes, I have heard that a few times now. My, it, my wife was listening to it, and so I tuned in with her, and I it's hilarious. It. Oh, they're so funny. I started listening to podcasts in about 2003, 2004. Isn't that crazy? Whoa! The very first podcast that there ever was, you were listening to it. I had to download them from the computer onto the iPod every time I'd go for a run and we'd update them. I'd listen to all sorts of these early on podcasts before people knew what they were really. And then I was trying to get Julie into podcasts for years and years, thinking she'd really enjoy some of these really great health and wellness and mindfulness and self-improvement and all this really interesting stuff. And then finally this year, I got her into listening to podcasts and she goes straight to true crime. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let me clarify though. True crime comedy. True crime comedy. Yeah, I love it when justice is served, like it is solved. And then yep. the ones I listen to are comedians that host it mostly. And so it's lighthearted. So you can sleep at night. Like it's not as terrifying. Oh, that's good. Yeah, I'd be all about that. I'm all for true crime comedy. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I found a niche. Well, I saw a pretty funny video today. It was on the interwebs. It wasn't a podcast, but it was a guy gets arrested. As he the, has his cuffs placed on him, the officer starts choking on his gum. And he's like choking bad. And uh, the guy looks around like he's cuffed and he's like, should I run? <laughs> oh God. So then he goes and the guy's on the ground by this point. He's like, get your keys out so I can unlock my cuffs and help you. And so the guy trying to get the keys out of his pocket while he's trying to grab at his throat and he finally gets the keys out. The dude gets down on the ground, arms behind his back, unlocks his cuffs. And he has to, he gets him into the Heimlich position, gives him about six or seven big pulls when this guy's bulletproof vest is on. And then all of a sudden you can see the gum fly out of his mouth and land on the car. And the guy's collecting himself and the dude goes and gets the handcuffs back, puts his hands behind his back so the guy can recuff him. And he's like, no, man, we're good. Uh, You saved my life. I'll call this one in. You saved my life. So the guy was ready to be rearrested after he saved this officer's life. And he was just... That happened for uh, real? That was some true crime uh, comedy, wow. but it was lighthearted. So that yeah. could make me sleep well. Right? That's so sweet. <laughs> when criminals <laughs> save lives. <laughs> yeah. Well, John, we have a lot in common. We've had some fun in the past through yep. Amazing Race and also this connection through speaking now Four. and then yeah. this whole passion towards Olympic medals. You have one and I'm trying to get one. I'm not trying to take <laughs> yours though. <but. laughs> not nor in skeleton. <laughs> not yet, you say. Not yet. Gosh, I was thinking about a winter sport. Can't that make would... a wrong turn in skeleton, so it might be the perfect sport for you. Do they have blind skeleton? Not yet. That's what I'm saying. You uh, could be the you first. You could be the first. You can't make a wrong turn. So. <laughs> 
if you can feel it, you can just put your head down low and go. That's really fastest way down the track. So you'll have an advantage actually in skeleton because your eyes let you down. If you see it and you react to it, it's already it's way past you. So yeah. you really have to rely on feel and you'd have that elevated sense just because of a, of a lack of clear vision. You would yeah. excel in this uh, arena. I've so got a lot of feelings. Skeleton could be your sport. He yeah. does. Is less weight or more weight better? Being a big fella, you'd carry momentum and it, you would be exceptional because weight is your friend in gravity sports and so uh, you'd be fleet of foot at the start you're strong you could start well and you'd be pushing a light sled yeah. because all the weight is on your body and you'd be flying you'd be a ripper man i'd guess, be a ripper guess I we're can... moving to calgary lol yeah. <laughs> yep <laughs> the journey continues yeah your sled is in the groove so you just run beside it it's guided for you and then it lets you go onto the track and now you descend the frozen toilet shoot by feel and you can do that <laughs> at like 140 kilometers an hour you love speed yep. and you love tights, so. There's the next chapter. I should send you this video. Lowell scared me all the time without even trying. Like he'd say, hello, and I'd be like, ah! and I'd fall to the floor like every time. But I, <laughs> when like I tried. She's like one of those fainting goats on the internet. I look like Bambi falling. It's ridiculous. I tried to scare Lowell to get him to fall and it, like he wouldn't. And so we both started recording attempts and I would fall every single time. And he just like kept walking like, hello. <laughs> So we compiled a video. I'll send it to you. It's ridiculous. But anyways. I'd like to see that. So his lack of reaction like that and his ability to just kind of like go with it, that would probably help him in the skeleton world, eh? Yep. Tailor suited. There are things in life where, uh, you know, some things are a disadvantage in other areas where they lend themselves quite well to being exceptional in other areas and being able to feel things like most people maybe couldn't yeah. spatial awareness yeah. where you are in terms of what pressures mean and where you are relative to a floor mm. i think that you would have a leg up on that i say there's no previous life experiences that people can draw upon to make themselves good when they first start skeleton racing but i could be wrong being short-sighted or, or have a deficiency in the ability to see properly is an area that would give you some level of a leg up when you first start skeleton racing just because your spatial awareness would be so much more mm -hmm. in tune yeah. and that's something that when you start sliding you have to develop and there's no other way to develop unless you went through life with a diminished sense of sight well do you think it's too late to add skeleton to beijing 2022 paralympics mm. you know what <laughs> there are parasliders but i don't know if there's any parasliders in the vision category yet so you need to start that and get a movement going That'd be great <laughs> So speaking of your sport, yep. you did not grow up doing skeleton. Can you tell Nobody us a does. little bit? <laughs> Can you tell us a little right bit? Right from the womb. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Well, you do kind of. You slide we right start out. as skeleton athletes. We do come into this world head first, which is out of the shoot. sort of why I, I thought that skeleton racing would be, you know, the next logical yeah. progression. Back to your most natural state. Head first. If you're going to leave this world. You might as well do it in the same fashion that you came in. Exactly. And you wow. did it so well coming in. So, so deep. Yeah, it worked for you. So yeah. deep. <laughs> but I, like the rest of the people on the national team, did not grow up, regardless of whether you were born and raised in Calgary or Russell, Manitoba, where I came from. Yeah. Nobody starts skeleton until their minimum age is 14. Okay. And so that's when you can take your first descents and then you get your license. You can slide anywhere in the world on any of the refrigerated tracks and natural tracks that are in the world. Once you have this passport, you can go and slide on any of them and enter races and so on. 
but you need to be 14 to get licensed to slide. So that is one barrier, I guess you could say, to development is the need to be 14. Mm -hmm. And the fact that most people seem to come from some other sport seems to be pretty significant as well. Uh, collegiate athletes that don't want to quite be done competing yet transition from rugby and football and hockey and track and field and any number of things. Most people, like myself, saw skeleton as a means to an end. Mm. I want to be representing my country. I want to have an opportunity to compete at the Olympics. This is about as low profile as it gets. Nobody's playing. So this is a, as low a barrier to entry as there might be. And it is a lofty aspiration, regardless of which sport you're playing, but maybe a little less lofty when you're looking at it from the perspective of limited amount of people to compete against to make that World Cup team. So. Well, there's also probably a reason why there's a limited amount. Like, I do not have a desire to hurl myself down face first and ice track, <laughs> so <laughs> you're that extra brave. That is another mitigating factor, perhaps, <laughs> uh, limiting the amount of people that compete. So, yeah. What is the biggest quality that suits a... A skeletor. It's all between the ears, always. For those that compete at a really, really high level, the differentiator is usually between the ears. And there the seems to be. <laughs> it is. <laughs> and behind that. So between the ears, behind the nose, it's not your pineal gland. It is what's all around the pineal gland. It is uh, the brain, the gray matter. And how you use it, how you're able to focus your attention on the detail, the minutia because that's where the difference between good and great exists. It's in that minutia, those, those nuanced details at the end of development. And my preparation for 2010 was great. It really was. I was on point. I was able to execute my game plan with near flawlessness. Uh, I knew how my sled was going to react underneath me to each uh, entrance and exit. And, and all those things were so well-defined in my mind's eye that I could see it, I could feel it, I could execute it on the day that mattered most. Being so far removed from that now, I, I can hardly imagine how it was possible back on February 18th and 19th, 2010. But at the time, I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't thinking, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to conjure it, uh, other than I was just trying to be. I was trying to execute my game plan, and that came from preparation. And the work that I did with my teammates, the hours of practice, the physical development. But in that space, in that sort of a mindset of being present in the moment, in the zone, as they call it, you just are. You're just executing a game plan uh, in, in that point in time. And that's what I was doing in 2010. So when's the last time you were on a sled? 2014. Yep. Okay, that Eagles, was the last my time. Very, my very last race, trying to qualify for the 2014 games falling short in that race, I needed to finish fourth. And I had a really good result at that time for me, I was sixth and I was struggling. So to be sixth in my very last race and just narrowly fall short, I backed myself into a corner. Mm. I didn't have some decisions go my way that could have uh, aided my attempt to go to the Sochi games, but it all boiled down to me trying to build equipment mm. to give myself, uh, our country, the best possible chance for success in, in 2014. Because my feeling was that the sled that I was on was deficient. The runners, I thought were okay, and the sled was deficient. I should have been focusing on the runners, the blades underneath, and just sort of slid on the exact same sled that I had in 2010. Hindsight's always 2020, but if I were to do it again, that would be the difference I, and change I would make. I would also be more collaborative in my equipment development process, uh, working more synergistically and collaboratively with my teammates. That was a short-sightedness on my part too. I could only do so much personally 
and I didn't have the time and consistency to be able to secure that spot yeah. for myself and for Canada in 2014. So that would be the most disappointing element of my athletic mm -hmm. career in one breath, but also maybe the greatest source of inspiration for doing things differently moving forward to know that in 2010, I took great risks and the pendulum swung my way. 2014, I took great risks and it didn't. The outcome is irrelevant. You got to swing for the fences, I believe, every time and take mm -hmm. your best shot. And you'll learn things about that process, about yourself, about that experience while falling short and being successful. And I'll apply those lessons from both experiences to future endeavors and knowing that I'm not defined by my failure in 2014, the same way that I'm not defined by that success in 2010. They're just parts of my outfit, uh, mm -hmm. parts of my uniform, and they don't define me. But how I react to them, that ultimately defines mm -hmm. who I am and what I use them for. So. And that's wonderfully said. And that's the point of this podcast and what we're trying to get out is this message of our obstacles become many of those opportunities for learning the opportunities yeah. for that next chapter. That's so true. And for you guys to highlight that, I think is telling of the success that you guys have, the happiness that you guys have in your life. You were listening to podcasts since 2004, Lowell, about betterment, about self-improvement, about being present, mm. about gratitude. Mm -hmm. And when people meet you, and Julie, I know you see this all the time, the way that they react to Lowell isn't probably surprising to you anymore, but you can see that people physically react to his character, to his vivacious energy mm -hmm. that is there. And it's not that he's physically put together any differently or that he's gifted in any way, because it, it, to Thanks me, for really it's about building work. Up there. Yeah. I'm, 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 <laughs> I'm, I'm not to downplay you I'm really at all. nothing I'm special. Inherently, we're all the same, man. <laughs> exactly. And uh, Lowell has this about himself because of effort that he's invested into this this element of his personality that shines, shines mm -hmm. brighter than most people I've ever met. And I know that it rubs off on you, that it rubs off on everybody that you come in contact with. And other people can achieve that too, is basically what I'm saying mm -hmm. in that it stems from a conscious approach to mm -hmm. the self-betterment, to being happy, yeah. to yeah. being grateful for the little bits and pieces that are all around us all the time. And that ends up being yeah. what we reflect on and put energy into mm -hmm. and feed on to make us ultimately shine brighter, happier people. Yeah, I often credit as well his visual impairment his disability, I feel, allows him to connect with people yep. on a deeper level. And I mean, we've been together for 18 years now. And during all that time, my close girlfriends even, they've never been uncomfortable with him. Any talk about bowels or bodily fluids, you know, anything that normally, <laughs> like any other husband or boyfriend would not be in the room and Lowell's there, they don't care at all. Yep. They just let everything out in front of him. So. Yep. Well, and people don't feel like they would be judged. Exactly. They know, they know yeah. what kind of soul you got and people can see it without seeing it. They feel it, you know, and that level of comfort around people like Lowell is something that comes from the way they project uh, into a space, into an atmosphere. And you're right. Visual impairment might be such a boon when it comes to uh, another sense of connectedness with, with mm -hmm. what's out there. Mm -hmm. We're all connected in some tangible way that we can't see. Mm -hmm. And when you can't see, maybe you can see it just a little bit better or feel it. Yeah. yeah. That ability to see without seeing. That's often that comment of that I can't see with my eyes, but I can see with my heart and really trying to, to Isn't see. Isn't that what uh, your grandpa was all about? Yeah, yeah, that's what he was known for. So that's what Lowell has been. The man that saw for. with his heart. Is yeah. that what they said about Ab him? Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Good memory. <laughs> oh, goosebumps there, brother. Yeah. Out of pain comes resilience. And I don't think you can have resilience without the pain. 
You can't have the learning without the obstacle in the same way. It doesn't resonate. It doesn't permeate the same way. And if I think back at your, your lesson back there, trying to compete and trying to represent Canada, win another medal at the second games. I mean, there's lots of pressure there. You moving towards that, you have this big disappointment. And in the moment, we're not all happy and everything's great. And the learning isn't there in that moment. What do you do when you're in that, the depths, that pain, what was that like before you are now looking back on it with all the lessons learned? Well, you take a second to, you know, lick your wounds and, and grovel, but you give yourself that space. You're gentle with yourself in that moment being like, yeah, you're pissed. You're really disappointed that uh, this didn't come to fruition the way that you had envisioned, the way that you had hoped for, the way that you had planned. So take a second. Uh, mm -hmm. to be miserable and down in the dumps and have grace with yourself uh, mm -hmm. in that short window of opportunity that you take to feel poopy. Yeah. But permission, then permission get to feel. the hell back out there yeah. <laughs> and start to either get back on the horse to do it again. Or if this was the line in the sand where you knew like 2014 was done for me, I wasn't going to go to 2018 because 2014 didn't work out. I wasn't going to delay the inevitable. The inevitable was that I needed to be done skeleton racing to move on with my life, both for personal health reasons, because tobogganing isn't easy on the brain. Knowing what I knew about my wife's condition in that moment, as well as where she had been and where she'd come from over the last three years since 2011. So 2014 was it for me. But I needed to get back out there and apply the lessons that I could take away from me, uh, from the good, the bad, the ugly, and skeleton, and apply it to that next thing in my life. And my wife and I, a couple of years ago, we were sitting around thinking, what are we going to replace skeleton mm. racing with? Yeah. And the answer that we came up with was nothing. We can't expect to replace something that was so amazing in our life the same way that you can't expect to replace a child, you know, or a mm. pet or something that you loved and, and held near and dear to your heart. And skeleton is that. So we can never mm. replace it. We can treasure it for what it yeah. was, what it represents in our life today. The lessons, the experiences, look mm. back on the photographs, the wounds, yeah. the medals, whatever, mm -hmm. with fondness and have immense yeah. gratitude for that. But look yeah. to find something else that we feel the same way about in our life today, knowing where it stemmed from. It stemmed from passion. And it stemmed from an active approach to finding things that we could invest energies of ourselves and even energies beyond what we could even hope to possess into something. And, it, and those energies stem from passion, from things that make you excited to get out of bed in the morning that are inherently hard. <laughs> usually mm -hmm. nothing worth doing is going to be easy yeah. and you're going to have to give of yourself collaborate with people create community and these are the things that i think folks find add value to life give meaning and purpose and direction to getting out of bed in the morning to doing something that's greater than the individual or for something greater than the individual and mm -hmm. i think when we can find those things make those connections have that community create that environment for ourselves we thrive we are happy we have greater longevity we don't experience dis-ease the same way that we do when we are coping all the time and mm -hmm. anger eating and stress eating mm -hmm. and uh, around toxic environments and toxic relationships and people and situations. And I believe that all of those things are connected and the more good we can do for ourselves, the greater we're going to be able to be for others that depend on us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So speaking of passion, Darla, tell us more about <laughs> your lovely wife and you guys met yeah. doing skeleton, I assume? That's right. Yeah. At the, at the start house in Calgary, I picture it in my mind's eye right now. I can see the walls. I can see the people, skin suits, not a, not a pretty picture, but it's a picture. <laughs> and so did you guys connect right away? I asked her if her last name was Deschamps. She was the only person that I didn't recognize. And I saw the name on the start list. 
And I told her a story about a family back home that was named Deschamps and that they were all nicknamed Dish. So uh, I guess you're Dish now. Nice to meet you, Dish. And then she was gone for about 18 months. She went away. This was before Christmas. She went after Christmas, she went away and then came back 18 months later. And it was the summer of 06. And uh, we were training and she joined our training group. And well, shortly thereafter, we teamed up. And that was, yeah, that was 2006. So it's been some time. Yeah. Coming up on 15. Our 10 year anniversary, wedding anniversary is coming up this summer. So. Oh, congrats. And two kids now, right? That's right. What is the biggest thing you've learned from her? Oh, from her? Definitely perseverance, courageousness, I guess the self-motivation. You know, the types of things that she has gotten over, worked through, done just through sheer intestinal fortitude blows my mind. Things that I don't think I could have weathered the storm, Mm -hmm. uh, the adversity, the setbacks, the physical pain, the big part. Did she have an accident or something? You alluded to that In skeleton racing, she was concussed in 2011. One of many concussions. The last one occurred in Lillehammer, Norway on December the 6th was the last day of sliding that she took in Mm. 2011. And she spent the next couple of years almost degrading, continually getting worse and worse Mm. from that concussion, post-concussion syndrome. And Mm. what she learned about that situation Sort of the negative feedback loop between the your second brain, which is which mm-hmm. is your gut, and your your first brain, which is obviously the one between your ears and right behind your nose hole. <laughs> to clarify, for um, all, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that gut brain connection, the vagus nerve that runs directly from your your brain mm-hmm. down to your gut. Eighty percent of your serotonin is produced in your stomach. That gut feeling that you get, that intuition. You, you do actually think with your guts, they mirror one another, they sort of look the same, they're all crinkled up and your stomach is profoundly connected to your brain health and your brain health is profoundly connected to your gut health. Mm-hmm. And when one is bad, such as having celiac disease as an underlying condition, when you hit your head, the celiac disease causes continued degradation of the brain and that causes continued degradation of your stomach and your leaky gut syndrome and that uh, brain blood barrier and all these things that we're coming to understand and know today Mm -hmm. about the connectedness Mm -hmm. between our dietary health and gut health and and our brain performance and health. And Mm -hmm. so these things that she learned about that ultimately paved the way for her to regain Mm -hmm. uh, a quality of life, a sense of Mm -hmm. self, because she'll never be the same person that she was prior to hitting her head, nor Mm -hmm. should she expect to be. She hoped to grow and evolve and change and get better and create new neural connections and pathways. Instead of trying to hang on to these hopes of being the exact same Darla she was, she began to look forward and look forward to incremental mm-hmm. gains that add up to monumental change type of an approach and mm-hmm. thinking. And and now she's on this amazing path of health and wellness and helping other people with similar challenges approach a reconnection to health and vitality through functional medicine and integrative health. And mm-hmm. that's what she's going to get into now with health coaching. And oh, cool. those types of things that I mentioned earlier that I learned from her yeah. are the things that I gleaned out of watching an individual yeah. recover and get up every day and approach health and wellness as a job for a decade now. And uh, I see the results and I look at her today and I see the happiness in her eyes with what she's doing, the fulfillment, that sense of connection Mm. that she had with Skeleton to helping people on their journey of health and wellness similar to her own. And an amazing example again of the obstacle, the concussion, the health consequences of the years after shaping her future, teaching her deepening her resilience. I mean, it's so amazing. I don't think you could find anybody that's been through the gutter 
that hasn't got a story about where they are today as a result of that experience. And if mm. they don't, that's the bloody lesson. You didn't learn anything. Mm. Uh, you're probably still suffering. Mm. <laughs> you know, mm. you probably haven't got much beyond yeah. that place you found yourself in, the terrible place, yeah. for lack of being able to see the lesson that was in this experience. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. yeah, you guys continue to shine a light on the fact that people's challenges are in fact loosely disguised as opportunities for mm -hmm. progression, for development, for growth. It's really that hero's journey. Right, the hero, yeah. these different chapters within the life, but that darkness, that crumbling, that falling apart. And I remember those times vividly, but to get through that to the other side, right, with the mentors and supports and relationships and the people along the journey are so very important. And I hear that, that your relationship, you and Darla have been so connected and, and together have helped in that healing process and recovery and movement forward. Well, folks are wildly interested about the two of you as well, but you mentioned the darkest days, Lowell, and what was it that mm -hmm. helped you in, in those darkest of days when you were feeling, woe is me? Yeah, and this is a, a huge thing we speak about in, in our talks as well and the speaking gigs that we do and trying to share this with kids. And I wish I had somebody when I was young to help give me some of these messages. So hopefully somebody listening can get some support from what you're saying. And, and one of the biggest pieces, I think for me, a few of them were the relationships, the people, my, my parents, supports, mentors, coaches, the people who invested in me, who saw something in me that I did not see in those times, who gave me some hope. And another one was sport. When I was falling apart, I didn't feel like I belonged. I felt like I was broken. And then I was able to find this place, Parasport, where I belonged. I could fit in. I could compete at the highest level, elite level, and feel like I had some sense of belonging. And then, of course, to find that meaning and purpose as a psychologist every day, I can go to work and know that I'm making a difference in the lives of other people. And to do that and to share that with Julie, my, my biggest teammate, is just <laughs> super powerful. So many facets. It's not just one magical answer that's going to help us go through it. It's this multifaceted approach of well-being and wellness. But the different thing about Lowell, too, is it's not like he just has a disability the way it is and it is static he's always losing more vision so it's kind of a constant loss he calls it perpetual grief so yep. Lowell, would you say the last time that you kind of experienced a dip in your happiness levels or anxiety would that have been when i was pregnant with our eldest son right yeah the, the last time it hit me big was mm -hmm. getting that news that we're going to be parents and it's so exciting this is amazing. We we're planning for this, that the next chapter, but then it hit me like a freight train or maybe like falling off a skeleton sled, <laughs> <laughs> um, running into the wall. It hit me that, well, I'm going to be a blind dad. I can't drive. I can't play sports. I can't, I, all the can't statements went into my head. Yep. I was just thinking as you were talking about how you got out of the other kind of dark points in your life, what was, what got you out of that one? I think that it was interesting because I was working as a psychologist during that time. So doing a lot of work, having a lot of support and, and you. And I think it was this coming back to the acceptance that that has been a tool. The acceptance and gratitude are the tools. And I had sport during that time as well. Some processes just have to be felt. Like John, you were mentioning earlier, it's that we need to name it, to tame it. You need to feel it. You need to be present with it. And then yep. it moves. Mm -hmm. Back to you, John. Sorry, I'm asking my husband no, questions that's here. The, that's He's the like stuff right that I love hearing. And yeah. here too. I mean, <laughs> thinking about moments like that, I would have never considered, you know, what it would have been like to get that, you know, little strip. We're going to have a baby. And then to think about the immediately jump into the, well, I can't, I can't, I won't. 
mm-hmm. knowing full yeah. well what comes of that. Totally. What yeah. if I hurt anxiousness? Yeah. What if I hurt this child? Yeah. Grief over things that mm. you never owned or had anyway. You never had a vision of this child. So to grieve over the mm. lack of something that you never had anyway is is ridiculous. But you get to look forward to holding. Oh yeah. my God! Right. Mm. Absolutely. Uh, to, to feeling mm-hmm. the heartbeat. To yeah. feeling little tiny fingers. Mm put a smile on your face mm-hmm. immediately when you start to get into those triggers of I can't, I won't, yeah. mm-hmm. what will I be missing? Yeah. When you can replace it immediately with something that will make your yeah. brain explode and your heart sing, Yeah. it's kryptonite for negative yeah. feelings. And yeah. I think the more often that we're aware of them creeping into our yeah. revolving audible loop in our head that we yeah. all can't escape, the quicker we can nip them in the bud, mm. the quicker we can get off that merry-go-round of perpetual self-loathing and, mm. and mourning things we never even yeah. owned, had, or lost in the first place. Yeah. And so getting yeah. onto that positivity freight yeah. train is a skill, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's got to be practiced. Any other potential about us, we need to exercise them all. Skills, mm. muscles, strengths, our weaknesses. We need to flex them on a regular if we expect to be able to use them mm-hmm. effectively as tools to mm-hmm. to manage, to cope, to be positive. Lowell often talks about can't statements and if you say you can't, then you can't. If you say you yep. can, you probably can. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> Whether you think you can or you can't, you're hundred percent right. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. We're still right. And that's an idea, right? To, hey, can I go and do this amazing race thing? That was a big part of us too. It's like, I, there's a lot of things I can't do, but I can't drive a vehicle. And can we do these things? And to be able to go and, and try, I, I don't know if I can, I'm going to try, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'll see if I can do this and hopefully we won't go home on day one. But if we do, Hey, it was a good experience. So that mindset of let's give it a shot. What's the worst that can happen? That has served me very well in life. Who was it who said you miss 100% of the shots you don't take? Is that Michael Jordan? Gretzky. Oh, Gretzky. was it Gretzky? Sorry, yeah, it sorry Wayne right. Gretzky and yep. gave the credit to another, <laughs> another <Gretzky>. NBA. Whoopsies. <laughs> we'll give it to Gretzky. Okay. Yeah. Canadian. We'll give it to our yeah Canadian let's give hero. it to the Canadian sport and hero. Well, and when you said I can try, I've got a vivid picture in my mind's eye right now of the two of you running in around the pool in Vietnam. I've got this picture because you said I can try and putting in a submission tape to going through the casting process to getting selected to be on the race to showing up on the starting line to getting past the first leg to finding yourself in Vietnam Wild. at the end of the leg and I mean come on I want to swear right now but I know. <laughs> we can bleep it go ahead all because you said I can try like yeah. what's the worst that can happen I can run into we a tree could almost die of sweltering heat on the next to the Mekong River oh yeah we broke other records there I think that was the first time that the whole race had to be stopped for a crew to be taken away by an ambulance that was our crew Woohoo! we wore yeah, them. you we guys almost ran them. your crew into the ground <laughs> you really dusted off crew members you can consider that a feather in your cap we just popped an electrolyte and uh, some water. We're like, let's go, guys. (laughs) We got a cameraman down. Replace that thing like a battery. Let's get going. Come on. Yeah, that was funny. What's the worst that can happen? Well, you can run into a tree at full blast on national television. (laughs) Except for those things weren't even trees. They were concrete posts wrapped in vines. Yeah, that was nasty. Remember the blood? Um, Yeah, there was blood. And how can you think 100% of the time, 24-7, 365, that the person on your arm doesn't see that tree? Julian, that can't be expected of you all the time. So we'll let that one pass. Did you hear me at all when I was running to see you? Yeah. Because I didn't know it was like a line, a nice like aisles lined by with trees lined on each side. I just saw yeah. the pool and then I saw a whole bunch of trees. And I'm like, okay, it's going to be really hard to navigate him around trees. So we're just going to stick by this pool. 
So what did I said left or right? You're saying left. So we're running down the, the aisle on the left. Oh, to the, the left trees. of the tree yeah. I meant because I was going to go along the side of the pool because I thought yeah. that's our clear. But as soon as I got a little closer, I saw there was this nice wide open aisle and you were right at the end. So I'm like, no, right. And then I yanked him right into it. That's what happened. <laughs> and the most embarrassing part is I kept going <laughs> and then I went to the pitch shop. And Excitement then, takes over. Yeah, the adrenaline can't combat that. And as Lowell says, he's like, you had momentum on your side. I had the benefit of the tree stopping me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like and i have to take a few paces to slow down and back up here yeah. come on honey yeah love you <laughs> yep. and that's interesting as a host right you've been host for man every season of amazing race canada that's seven seasons seven. now amazing wow. so i'd like to go into a little bit of the learnings from that but in that case right you have this competitor coming to the line injured you have people with all sorts of emotions like you have to be present in that moment tell us a little bit about that how has it been like to be present in that process with individuals as things are unfolding and happening right before you. And having said that, not only do you have to be present, but you are like, you're an amazing host. And we know that from being competitors on the show that that's not scripted. Like we get to the pit stop and your follow-up questions, your off the cuff, like everything you say is you're just, you're so good at it. The focus part and putting out of your mind that there is a crew of 50 around you sometimes <laughs> yeah. and just focusing on the, athletes, the racers yeah. in front of you does, I think, to some extent, stem mm -hmm. from sport, the ability to just focus in on, on what's important and, and not worry about all the noise that's happening beyond this people. The capacity to do that, though, is maybe rooted in curiosity. Like, mm. if I didn't care, mm -hmm. it would seem, you know, fake, it would be hard for me to focus in on the racers, if I didn't care. But I do. Yeah. Like, I am so wildly engaged in what it is that you guys have to tell me because I'm vibing off of the energy of the racers. And I can't not be influenced by a couple of people who have just experienced the most bananas day of their yeah. entire life <laughs> yeah. for after, you know, having been sequestered for a week to oh, a hotel geez. room before we even do the first leg of the race yeah. to every other day experiencing the most crazy day of their lives while traveling on little sleep and poor nutrition. Being in someone's presence like that is contagious. And so I'm vibing off of the racer's mm -hmm. energy and then in turn wanting to find out how was your day? What was the most magnificent thing about it? How did you collectively accomplish what it is that you did today? How did you synergize, collaborate? All the sort of touch points and elements of an interview that goes with the amazing race, it's fairly formulaic at this point with regard to how those mat chats, as we call them, play out. Mm -hmm. But it's never any less compelling from my standpoint to ask those same sort of laundry list of questions, to get mm -hmm. reactions, to ask them how proud their mom would be, see if you can get them to cry. Right. <laughs> Mention somebody's mom. Oh, yeah. You usually get a tear. Or kids. You've learned these things from the producers on the race as mm -hmm. time goes along. Yeah. And my ability to know where they want the conversation to go has stemmed from their help in getting me to the point where mm -hmm. I can now do these mat chats fairly unassisted. Mm -hmm. It is mm -hmm. off the cuff and mm -hmm. it's authentic, but it is certainly me knowing where the touch points are, where yeah. we want to talk about the story and the highlights and, yeah. and that evolution. And the focus, you're right, that comes from having trained myself for 14 years to focus for 52 seconds yeah. uh, or however long, uh, 52 to 70 seconds long. And huh. well, the mat chats are slightly longer than that, but not much. So yeah. I've got that amount of time on lock right now. So for competitors, at least, it's very much hurry up and wait, like rush, 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 rush. And then often we have to wait. Like there's so much downtime that you don't, I hated the yep. downtimes. That's when I got in my own head and I missed our kids and all that. 
What do your downtimes look like? So for the downtime for us on the race, because we're on the go all day long, collecting shots, traveling from one setup to the other, mm -hmm. we don't have incredible amounts of downtime, but on race day, once we get to the mat, we're there for the duration as long as it takes the racers to show up. So that's sort of the most downtime that we experience as well. And when the racers show up, they go out for various interviews after the end of the day and collect data and B-roll footage for the interviews after racing. And we're left to receive the other racers, but we're preparing for them to come in, staying abreast of storylines uh, via the cellular communication that we have to take advantage of. We are doing pickups. We're doing our links from the mat. So we introduce the mat. We do the walk-ups. We have our laundry list of shots to get yeah. around the mat, the start for the next leg of the race. And then once the last team shows up and it's gone, the mat rolls up and we're literally grabbing our bags and we're flying to the next location to do all the links, to do all the dry runs of the challenges the next day. And then it's race day. And this repeats over and over and over for mm. about four or five weeks of time for filming. And that's the formula. And at yeah. the end of it, They've got a whole show that has yeah. already started editing. We're sending tapes yeah. home after the first day of shooting That's because crazy. it comes to air so quickly. Yeah. We shoot this in the spring and it's on the air for beginning of July. So that is a turnaround period of less than half for yeah. a regular program. And just thinking about that first leg, the amount of footage, because at that time, the maximum number of teams are there. They've done all the challenges. They have all the pickup right. interviews. Our, oh, our first interview, what do they call them? The post interviews, whatever. Anyways, uh, team, when they interview about, interviews. yeah, about the leg. And first of all, you have to talk in present tense. So that was hard to get our minds around because you can access those memories and talk about them a little easier when it's in past tense, you know, and you access yep. the emotions, but then, oh, I have to rephrase that. But I was also, I was so emotionally drained, like so drained. And I was bawling. <laughs> I was bawling through the whole interview and, and the story producer, L.A., she was looking at our crew and like, was she this emotional during the leg? They're like, no. She's like, okay, we can't cry because that doesn't match your emotion on the leg. But I was so done <laughs> because they, the viewers think that that was like a one day leg. But really, it was like 48 hours on like two hours of sleep and ate a granola bar. They don't mm. see the intensity <laughs> they behind see it. 42 and a half minutes of sheer entertainment. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Oh, so you've crazy. seen people in these, right? We're, we're coming to the mat emotional. You got to see me cry at the end. I don't know. Did I cry on the mat? Maybe oh, I didn't. No, we did. No, you did. We processed the our elimination very differently. At that point, I, I had kind of given up that day. It was, I really missed the kids. And so when we were on the mat, Lowell was so disappointed to be going home. And he, you just hugged, was it Robin? Mm -hmm. One of the producers just, yep. they just embraced for many many minutes and he just bawled and bawled so for a couple weeks he was just a little down and I was like woohoo we got to talk to our kids finally and <laughs> you know that kind of stuff but two weeks yeah. later I hit a downtime and all of a sudden I was like oh we could have gone further oh and I had this kind of depression <laughs> so we, we handled it differently at different times I pressed it in the Post moment race blues yeah, yeah, yeah the grief, exactly the grief the loss the what-ifs but I mean, just the power you see people in it's raw emotion. It's real. Like this is, it's a real, it's a TV show, but it's real. And so you've mm -hmm. seen over 70 teams now. I don't just did some math in my head. I don't know if it's correct, um, but approximately seven times teams. 10 ish. Yeah. And yep. you've seen a lot of reactions. You've seen a lot of emotion. And I guess my question is, what have you learned about people's mindsets that make a good racer? What's the mindset that works well for the winners and for people who do well on amazing race? 
Well, in terms of being a good racer, it's all about having a good mindset. It's not about any other physical strengths or attributes, really. It's, it's about the mindset and the ability to communicate. I'd say those would be the two greatest assets to determine somebody's ability to compete mm -hmm. on a show like The Amazing Race Canada. And, you know, if it was World Strongman competition, well, there would be another asset that would be incredibly valuable, and that would be sheer strength. <laughs> but that's not a real strength on the Amazing Race Canada. It's not a real asset. Your ability to believe that you can get through a difficult situation, that you can slow things down enough to be able to process information, because sometimes it's just a, a turn of phrase or reading something and, and doing some critical thinking, some deductive reasoning. And then it's about communicating effectively and fighting nice with your partner because you're inevitably going to come to blows with them you're going to have a blowout of some sort but if you can fight nice you can get over it quickly and mm -hmm. move forward with purpose but if you're going to take it to heart and have everything that somebody says to you that might be short or in a moment of anxiety if you're going to take it personally it's going to be a long road to hoe <laughs> it's going to be a testy testament to your time on the race and the ability to have a positive mindset, the can-do attitude, mm -hmm. and communicate efficiently and effectively with your teammate, those would be the qualities mm -hmm. that would determine those who can be on that last leg of the race with an opportunity to win from those that are likely to going to go home in the first three episodes. And anything in the middle, sort of gray, but that list would separate those two sets, if you ask me. Yeah, we were waiting for more of the strength things. In the first several legs, there weren't a lot of strength and endurance type challenges. We wanted more like run up a mountain or something. We felt like that, that would yeah. set us apart. That would be what I would want. <laughs> Dancing, <laughs> figuring out something that was arithmetic based. Oh, man, those would be oh. nightmarish challenges for me. So I'd be hoping yeah. for something that I could just grit my teeth and gut it out. But through, through the course of the race, you're going to be presented with everything. So yeah. it really matters when you get different elements that play to your strengths and weaknesses that are going to determine harder legs from easier legs, but they're all achievable. And how it comes out in the wash is often determined by what's between the ears and yeah. behind the nose. <laughs> we thought if there was a dancing challenge that we had to do, or if Lowell had a roadblock one, that would have been really difficult. <laughs> we had 10 pounds of visual aids and equipment, like headlamps and adapters, so we could charge them in whatever country, all that kind of stuff. I brought wristbands that light up that I could put on my legs and arms. I remember, I think it was season two, they had to learn a dance and it was at yep. night. And I'm like, if I have to teach Lowell a dance at night, I'm going to have to light up my body parts. <laughs> we had to think of all these things before going to the race, but thankfully we uh, didn't get stuck with the dance. So that's good. We wanted more things like eating bugs. That was right up our alley because you don't have to think about it. Just do it. Yep. And do jumping it. off high things and jumping in cold things, stuff like that is what we wanted. <laughs> Hopefully you got a couple of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, eating, definitely got eating bats and coconut worms in Vietnam and yes. Skytram and Jasper bungee jumping and rappelling up the Calgary Tower. So there's some pretty good good moments we got where it's just do it. The monkey bars underneath the tram and Jasper. Which one of you did that? that, that oh, me. that was Lowell. And he yeah. could have done it. He could have done it, but he couldn't see the bars in the rungs. So he like slowly felt his way and it was like kind of rickety and he yep. slipped right when he was reaching for the last rung. He totally could have done it. He he was definitely strong enough. And they went down and up oh, and it was, down and yeah, up. They it weren't, was, uh, it wasn't as straight across and well, it was terrifying standing on top yeah. just thinking about people dangling from the bottom. Yeah. I never got to do that one or, or go and try my hand at it, but it looked pretty wild. It was yeah, wild. it was. But so that was like kind of devastating when he fell because that meant we had to, you know, kind of press reset and that was going to delay everything. 
But that was one of Lowell's favorite moments. He got to bungee jump yes. off the sky tramp. That's hardcore. Yeah. yeah. Speaking about mindset, right it. now I'm bungee jumping off the sky tram in Jasper. You can't even pay to do this. And so, no. yeah, I chose to do that. But the fact that he could switch his mindset that quickly, like knowing that, okay, I fell, but the video of him is going, woohoo, <laughs> like a huge <laughs> smile on his face. <laughs> it's a skill. It wasn't the first time that he'd ever yeah. been sort of forced yeah. to look at the other side of the coin. And the more often you do it, the easier it is yeah. to be like, nah, okay, yeah. but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'll, call it, we'll call it skill power. Yep. After that episode, when our, our son watched it, he's a, probably four he's at that four, time. Yeah. He said, Dad, you were very brave. If you keep <laughs> practicing next time, you'll get those monkey bars without falling. It's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> it's so cute. And see, he didn't come up with that on his own. I mean, he'd heard it. You guys talk yeah. about this stuff. That's the way that you communicate with your children. So that's mm. what they believe. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe the greatest gift you could give somebody mm -hmm. yeah helpful mindset i think there are many benefits to having a blind father um back yeah. to the challenges for a sec though so you didn't get to do that one but you've done most of the challenges right would you say yeah, most? And being on top of the gondola instead of being underneath i didn't i think they couldn't uh, get their brain wrapped around how they might shoot it so oh, okay he's standing on top like a hero looked better for the cameras and okay. i always get the opportunity to try the stunts and i've only ever balked at one doing the underwater dive in, in the cage from this last season under the ice oh um, that one you have to get completely undressed in a tent on a lake and then go get a wetsuit on get wet have to redo my hair for all the links that we still had for the balance of the oh, day and then <laughs> risk getting a cold and being on the road for the next month oh yeah until. so i told myself that's why i wasn't doing it but it mostly stemmed from the fact that I was scared and I didn't really want to go under the ice yeah. in the middle of winter. So. <laughs> so of the challenges that you have done, what was your favorite and what was your least favorite? The most exhilarating are often my least and most favorite. Like jumping off the Macau Tower was terrifying. And finding the intestinal fortitude to take that leap of faith was both gratifying once it was over and gut-wrenching in the moments leading up to it. And so... Yeah. Things from heights, I, I've had to deal with a lot of heights on the show and oh, yeah. I'm getting better at <laughs> confronting those fears, just like any fear that, mm -hmm. that we have, we can get better the more we expose ourselves to it. Yeah. And I'm going to now have to apply that mentality to getting more comfortable in water. That is where I would like to make inroads that I don't presently have mm. a sense of confidence. I have a lot of work to do to gain confidence in being in water, comfortable under the waves. Yeah. And I've been rolled a few times while surfing and never maybe been quite as comfortable as I, as I would like to be. And mm -hmm. so it almost seems to be getting worse. So mm -hmm. I'm going to apply what I've learned through the race with heights mm -hmm. to my debilitating fear of being underwater. And start doing some breath work too. Breath work is so healthy just in general. Yeah. I am taking what I'm learning with breath work from a meditation and mm -hmm. the calming the body, uh, breathing with our nose for nitric oxide that it's at the front of it, for moistening the air, for vorticing the air through our mucous membranes that are greater than N95 masks, uh, all this stuff. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I digress, but breathing and learning to breathe efficiently and doing breathing exercises are profound for human performance. Yeah. We have a little segment we're doing, and it's really to check in on some mindset in regards to certain yep. words. And we have a throwback back to Fred Penner and his word bird, right? Love Fred Penner and his <laughs> word bird. And that hollow log of his. Absolutely. Best show ever. And he's a Manitoba man too, isn't he? Yeah, he is. You know what? He, he is. You're right. He goes back to Manitoba in the summer times. And I met him on a plane. He lived out here on the West Coast in the wintertime, I believe. Oh, fun. He came to Lethbridge like two years ago. So we got to see him in a parking lot. Awesome. Actually on a street. 
wasn't it? Yeah, he was performing. He's so present, and I yeah. really enjoyed him. So we were thinking about this segment name. I thought, hey, word bird, it's, we're, we're going to give you a word, and we'd yep. like you to reflect on that word. So it could either be how you define it or how that word fits into your life, what it means to you. Sure. The first one is failure. 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 All right. Failure seems like one of those F words, like it's a dirty word. When you first hear it, it sounds sharp. But the more that I keep saying it out loud and, and I sit with it for a second, the more I feel like you grow to know it because it's happened more frequently than the alternative, which is success and winning. And we fail all the time, every single day. It's pervasive in our daily experience. Uh, we, of course, place more emphasis on some failures than others. Some are trivial and some are heart-wrenching. And the end of our lives, it feels like in the moment. Mm. But they're gifts, man. They're mm. incredible opportunities to learn something valuable, something that you need to know, something that you didn't know before this experience, that if you can make it a part of your arsenal, a, a tool in your kit, an awareness that you didn't have before, then you're better for it. Mm. And so you are now emboldened, made better, made stronger, tempered, somehow made more whole for this failure than not perhaps. And what would you have learned from being successful in this attempt? You could ask yourself, and maybe it wouldn't mm. be this nugget that is going to serve you really well for the future. So failures for me, uh, unpacked a little bit, are true gifts. Beautiful. Word number two, which I heard you say in there, success. I was going to say, contrast it, compare and contrast. Yeah. Success might be on the flip side, it, it's the mm -hmm. opposite of failure is success. But success might be just finding that silver lining to a failure, being able to spin something, to have gratitude about a situation. That can be success. And it doesn't have to be about achieving what you intended to at the outset. There could be other successes along the way that you had no idea were going to present themselves through this experience, through exposing yourself, through putting yourself out there to fail. You didn't know. So success isn't always the goal that you aspire to. Mm -hmm. There can be many things along the way that you can deem as successes through an experience. And so mm -hmm. it's not the flip side of failure in my mind. It is something mm -hmm. completely different. How about fear? What does fear mean to John Monty? Yeah, fear means being underwater. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're working on that. Fear. Fear would be the presence of, of doubt, I guess, in my mind. And fear is super healthy. I think that we have to question all that we do, the manner by which we're doing it. It's not fear of failure necessarily. That's not going to stead you well. But fear in, am I prepared enough? Fear in, am I safe enough? If you have fear for your safety, you're going to take the necessary requirements to ensure that if there is a failure, that the worst case scenario isn't going to be you losing your life or someone else. And so healthy bits of fear are good. So fear is healthy ways of looking at things. And the presence of fear can be motivating. And it doesn't need to be something that is debilitating. I was just thinking, you built an Olympic sporting career on frozen water. Does mm -hmm. that help you with water? It does not. Okay. No, <laughs> I am afraid to say that that provides me of uh, little, no comfort. Okay. Little uh, comfort. I was hoping that I had something there, but clearly I'm not the psychologist in the family. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. But you do know something yeah. about fear and conquering fear. So I think it's now about taking that lesson that you've learned about fear for heights, fear for speed, and then applying it. So how do I calm my mind and body in, in this other area? So how do I make this thing that feels unsafe to feel more safe? 
just exposure, plain and simply. Mm -hmm. uh, those things that cause you debilitating fear. And so that's the difference. Healthy fear and debilitating fear. A fear that causes you not to do something is debilitating. A fear that causes you to prepare well for something that you can now find enjoyment in. Mm. Enjoyment in that sense of being scared, that, that trepidation. I have a certain amount of trepidation about walking out to a precipice, something at a high point, but I'll do it because I find it invigorating. I know in my heart of hearts that I'm safe. I know that when I take a leap off a precipice in a bungee jump or, or some other sort of a stunt that I have entrusted my safety to quintessential professionals. Not going to do it on the weekend for some herb that's been drinking beer and thought that he'd set up a tree swing over the lake. <laughs> but I will undertake a professionally orchestrated and executed stunt for the amazing race with great confidence because mm -hmm. I know mm -hmm. that my personal safety has been considered. And the fear that I have, it causes me to make sure that things have been double checked, that we're mm -hmm. triple checked, that we're quadruple checked. And now that I can go and scare myself yeah. with a smile on my face. Yeah. I'll be able to have that same sense of adventure, mm -hmm. of scaring myself, diving deep into water, equalizing and maybe doing some spear fishing uh, while hopefully trying not to get mm -hmm. eaten by a shark. I know I'll be able to move from a fear that prevents mm -hmm. me from doing that, that I have mm -hmm. right now, to a fear that will make sure that I've prepared mm -hmm. my body, my mind and my equipment to go and do this yeah. undertaking safely and execute it with that adrenaline that I know that I'll get from doing something that's just a little bit out there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love how you reflect on fears being something that has positive aspects to it, that listening oh. to it, hearing it, and often think about these difficult emotions or, or ones that we might think are negative. And if we think about them as just being passengers in the vehicle, we need them to speak up at times. Yeah, slow down. This isn't safe. And we just need to make sure that they're not driving and they're not choosing the music because they, yeah. they have lousy choices in music. <laughs> right where you find fear is the same place you're going to find joy. Uh, yeah. For me, mm -hmm. you think about public speaking. How terrifying is it to get out there when you do public speaking? I'm always, I still get nervous. My palms get sweaty. Mm. I get sort of that nervous butterfly mm. energy. And I'm like, yeah, come on, welcome it. <laughs> you know, you, you, you welcome that feeling of yeah. anxiousness to the point where it's an old friend. You welcome it in. You're like, mm -hmm. hey, come on, let's go out on stage and let's do this. Yeah. Let's take a deep breath. Hello, old friend. And let's start <laughs> flapping our lips. And yeah. the moment you do that, the anxiousness goes away. The butterflies yeah. are gone you're concentrating on that next word delivering mm -hmm. that stupid joke that you wrote <laughs> all these other elements of delivery of being engaged with an audience mm -hmm. you know all these types of things are the reason to get out of bed in the morning yeah. and if you're not scared to do it it means that you're not putting yourself out there enough to fail <laughs> yeah and i think that the anxiety that i have anyways right before we speak it immediately kind of calms down once you start speaking and then the adrenaline rush afterwards i love that feeling <laughs> yeah you're wired <laughs> yeah right? totally yeah. yeah you can't jab a vein for that kind of stuff you know that uh, level of connectedness mm -hmm. with an audience to receiving them afterwards chatting yeah. meeting people there isn't anything out there that can really replicate it in terms mm. of an artificial high uh, yeah. or, or even other yeah. things. So once you've done it, it's something that you you want to get more comfortable at, but you welcome that sense of nervousness. Mm -hmm. And it's like an old friend and you shake hands and then mm -hmm. you go out on stage and you do your thing. But you if yeah. that wasn't there, I'd be asking myself, holy, 
do I even care yeah. anymore? Like, do I honestly, am I invested mm-hmm. in this? Because if I don't care about the outcome, why am mm-hmm. I even here? You know, I, I don't care enough to put in the kind of effort that yeah. it's going to take to do a good job. So that fear means I care and I yeah. welcome it. A benefit for us is we get to do it together. And I ah. love hanging out with Lowell doing that. And yep. it doesn't get old for me. I love listening to Lowell myself and just, <laughs> I, I just watching the audience connect with him. And I get that unique perspective of while he's talking and I'm standing up there with him, I get to see the emotion go over the people's faces. Mm. That really makes it meaningful for me. Lots of pride. Mm. <laughs> yes, yeah, yes, lots fun. of pride. Teamwork. Okay, it's, this oh. one's going to actually oh, reflect I have another a little word. bit off that. Do you? Oh, it is? Okay, so that is a natural flow? It's a natural flow. Okay, yeah, then yeah. you carry on. So my natural flow <laughs> for, for the next word, for John Monty and our word bird, yep. um, copyright Fred Penner, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Don't is, sue. It's a deep one. Love. What does love mean to you? Love means something that's more important than air, yourself, your personal safety, your own personal happiness. You'd give all that up for that which you love, for protecting them, for their betterment, for their satisfaction. Selfless giving is love and not wondering what you're going to get back in return because you've got zero expectations about anything in return. It's a, it's about what you can selflessly give of yourself. You couldn't possibly hope to have something come back to you or the sense of your connection with this other entity, individual, object, experience. Mm. Uh, these are all things that you can love, but I think they're unadulterated. It's true, and when it's, when it's real, it's uh, not expecting anything in return from whatever it is that you're loving. Mm. Beautiful. I love that. Okay, my word, Oprah. Oprah. Oprah is, uh, is God. Uh, <laughs> I knew God was a woman. <laughs> Oprah is is queen of the people. Oprah is is a lot of things. Uh, I think that she, for lots of people, is the embodiment of of what's possible. She stands for what people want to achieve, which is success, both financial success, business success, her success in developing a, a following, a culture, a, a sense of connectedness with people that were watching her programs. And they all felt like they were her friends. Mm-hmm. She was giving them something of value in their lives. Whatever her program was about that day was something that Oprah thought would benefit the people out there. And she never fell prey to doing too much of the, what you might call Jerry Springer uh, type <laughs> talk show stuff. Yeah. And, and she stuck to wanting to do good by her audience. And mm-hmm. I think that that is wildly commendable. She made it entertaining so the people wanted to tune back in. She made it uh, compelling because she gave stuff away who wouldn't want yeah. one of Oprah's uh, swag bags. Yeah. <laughs> but I honestly believe that her heart was in it for her audience and she wanted to empower them to, to make changes in their lives through education, through inspiration, and through exposure mm-hmm. to the types of people like Deepak Chopra mm-hmm. and the gurus that she found mm-hmm. I guess, benefit in, in their teachings and, and the books that she was re- reading and mm. uh, finding inspiration in as well. So mm-hmm. Oprah's a good lady. Are, were you on Oprah? I was on, so her friend, Allie, okay. uh, one of her roving reporters, Allie, I think okay. was her name. She's been on lots of programs. She was at Richmond Square in Vancouver. Or not Richmond Square, downtown, not at the Richmond Oval, but there's a square in downtown Vancouver where they had an outdoor skating rink. And so... I did a segment with Allie that aired on the Oprah show. So I don't even think that my name crossed Oprah's lips. She's probably just like, 
And here's another segment from the Olympics in Vancouver with oh. our friend Allie. And so I was on that on Oprah. Okay, because I saw the headlines. I'm like, he was on Oprah? But then I'm like, I cannot find this interview. I did not get to jump up on the couch and profess my love for Darla like Katie Tom Holmes. Cruise did for Katie Holmes. But <laughs> I was on a segment of Oprah. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's still cool. Julie, yeah. she surprised me on that one. I didn't see that word coming. Um, <laughs> I, I don't see a lot of things coming, actually, being, yeah. a, being a blind guy. But yeah, I, I, she must have done her homework, I guess, because yeah, that was a great response. <laughs> yep. Speaking of Whistler, the man who handed you the beer. Lady. Lady. The lady handed you a beer. Yep. Okay, it was a lady. That was iconic. Have you met her since then? Haven't met her. No, she lives in New Zealand. Oh. Uh, she's a physiotherapist. I chatted with her on the phone once while she was at a conference in Australia. She's come back to Canada since the games with her newborn in about 2016 or 2017. Okay. And we weren't able to get together on that trip, but we intend to say thank you in person one day. I, I owe her way more than a pitcher of beer in return. Yeah. But it's a debt of gratitude that I'll never mm. be able to repair for. Yeah, that's one of those moments. It's you you cannot plan for that hate. I'd be your angel. Yeah. <laughs> so for some people might not know what happened in that iconic moment, but walk us through that. You just won gold for Canada on home turf. I mean, that's huge in and of itself. So walk us from that moment forward for people who might not know this. We had epic done story. doping control. So I'd already made my urine sample. <laughs> I had been to a post-race interview up at the sliding center in the media tent up there. We came from that, I believe, post-race media interview down the gondola with a camera that tagged along with us from the interview. So the camera is in the corner of the gondola, big light, dark out at night because it's bumping up on 9, 10 o'clock at night, I think, at this point. And so we came down to the village and as I get off the gondola, somebody was in one of the pubs, Black's Pub at the base of the mountain because her brother was bartending and she was visiting along with another brother that had come from somewhere else in the world. They all converged on Whistler for the Olympics to enjoy, enjoy the entertainment and fun. And uh, she, being from England, thought that I could use a refreshment and as they would in England or any pub in Canada uh, she told her brother to pull a pint or pull a pitcher and left promptly with it and as I was walking just past Black's pub she ran out of the establishment and thrust it into my then awaiting hand <laughs> it didn't take me long to trigger on the movement out of the corner of my eye as I saw this girl with what appeared to be a beer pitcher. Your eyes go wide. And I was like oh <laughs> this and hopefully this is mine please yes <laughs> thank you and didn't pay two licks of attention to the officers that were with me as um, I was either overzealous, not thinking, or just hopefully optimistic that they wouldn't charge me for open liquor and took a, a good hearty swill of it and, and drank about a quarter. <laughs> the only way to say thank you to anybody that presents you with a pint or a pitcher in Manitoba is to uh, to drink from said yeah. uh, free gift. And so that's what I was doing was saying thank you to Canada yeah. and thank you to my beer angel for bestowing Aww. upon me the greatest gift I've ever been given, except for, of course, my wife's hand in marriage. But yes. other than that. And did you get in trouble? <laughs> And the children she Oh, uh, of she course, bore for of us. course. So I went back to Whistler for the beginning of the next season. And the first race of the World Cup campaign for 2010-11 season was in Whistler. And I won that one. It would be the last race that I would win on the World Cup circuit. And at the uh, festival tent afterwards, there was an officer standing there. And he's like, are you John Montgomery? <laughs> and I said, yes. Who and wants so to he know? <laughs> writes his autograph on a ticket, tears it off of his ticket pad and hands it to me. And it, it's a ticket for consuming alcohol in a public place from February 2010. <laughs> He's like, I've been waiting half a year to give this ticket to you. And the fine amount on it was a big goose egg with a line through it. And I was like, this is the single greatest Aww. ticket I've ever gotten. 
<laughs> I still have it. I treasure it. And yeah, I did get a fine or I did get ticketed for that, that beer stunt, but I, there was no fine, which is the best ticket I ever That's got. That's awesome. Fine. You should carry that with you. And if anyone else tries to give you a ticket, you should just, you know, follow suit, please. Yeah. yeah. Like, look, <laughs> just here's precedent setting ticket. I always get fined zero for my misdemeanors. So something happens there during the games. There's an energy, there's an air. And how do you reflect back on the words Paralympic spirit? No, not Paralympic. Let's do Olympic. You're, you're Olympian. So what is... Oh, let's do Paralympic spirit. That's the, <laughs> the spirit of competition. It's the evolution of the Olympic spirit. It's not just about able-bodied individuals striving for athletic excellence. It's about individuals striving for athletic excellence, regardless of your capabilities or your able-bodiedness. It is irrelevant. What uh, Olympism is is about the quest to take what's available to you and use those tools to test your metal against those that are doing the exact same thing as you on a field of play wherever that field of play may be whatever gender race religion sexual orientation color of skin religious background or profinity none of them matter it's about taking what you've got and testing yourself against those who want to compete against you. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, the Olympics is the, the highest level. And whether it's para or, or regular old Olympism, that to me is what it means. And watching people put themselves out there to see where they stack up is the most compelling thing in the human experience. We've been watching people do it since time immemorial. Mm -hmm. There have been games of all imaginable shapes and sizes and scales and productions, whether it was the ancient Mayans, the Aztecs, the people that built Gobekli Tepe, the Egyptians, whoever they were, the Druids, they all played games. They all tested themselves. Some of them probably tested themselves and played games that were related to things that were useful, like hunting and war. Mm -hmm. But some were probably just for sheer enjoyment and maybe even cerebral dexterity, things that don't even know about math games. Who knows what people have been doing? But mm -hmm. people have always wanted to see where they stack up. And people have always wanted to be entertained by watching those see where they stack up yeah. in that hierarchy. And that's what Olympism is about to me, is just testing yourself against others that want to do the same. One story that I loved hearing you tell was about how you were introduced to skeleton in in the first place when you were 22 was it living in Calgary and you had a full weekend of activities planned for your parents visiting right yeah well, it, it involved absolutely nothing <laughs> as most 22 year olds they do they don't plan anything for their parents arrival <laughs> but we were doing a self-guided tour of COP and as luck would have it, a skeleton sled came blazing past me, hell bent for leather at 125 kilometers per hour down that frozen toilet chute at the end of February of 2002. Ooh. And I didn't know what it was. I thought that it was a horrible luge accident upon witnessing it at first, seeing this person going down face first on their stomach because I didn't know the sport existed. But you see enough sleds come by and pretty quick you can recognize a trend when you see it. And I knew they were intending to do this. So I ran inside, found out that it was called skeleton racing. And then a week later, I was trying it for myself. And this was end of February, beginning of March of 2002. And I knew after my first run that I'd found something that I could be passionate about, that I could sink my teeth into, that I could call my own. And I didn't care what the sport was set up like. I didn't know anything about the politics. I didn't know anything about the possibility really for the 2010 games. That was still on the horizon. That was July the 3rd of 2003 that I had done a season in the sport. Then on July the 3rd of 03, we found out we were getting the 2010 games and that cemented my, mm -hmm. my stretch goal, my, my BHAG, my big, hairy, audacious goal at the end of that <laughs> next eight years was going to be, or seven years at that point was going to be to go to 2010. 
Okay, you grew up in Manitoba, and did you know Theo Fleury personally, or you guys just grew up in the same town? My dad taught Theo. Yeah, my dad was oh, cool. uh, his elementary school principal, K to six or whatever it was. Ooh. Dad taught Theron and New Theron, and in 1989, when they won the cup, he came home to Russell and spoke at the school. And I remember meeting Theron at that time. Dad introduced me to him, so I always knew of him and was familiar with him. But you no, know, we weren't buddies, and we didn't call each other on the weekend. But <laughs> our hockey teams were arguably the two best hockey teams to ever come out of Russell. My 1994 Bantam hockey team called the Russell Rangers won a Western Canadian bronze medal. Uh, we won the provincial championship for our size of town plus the uh, the final four for Manitoba that year. So we had this amazing run in hockey in 1994. And wow. 10 years before us in 1984, Theron's Bantam hockey team had had a similar type of a journey. No tryouts, no pickups. They played well beyond the size of town that we are. You know, we're 1,632 wow. people and you paid your $100 and you played on our hockey team. And, huh. you know, we had this kind of success, both teams. And so we played in 2004, 10 years after our 1994 success and 20 years after their 1984 success. And by golly, the old boys beat us 20-year-olds. We were oh, 24, no. 25 at the time, and they were all 34, 35. And Theron's team, they showed us young lads what for. So barely, just barely, though. <laughs> so we've had that kind of connection through Russell, through town. And mm. he's somebody that I've always idolized and sort of put on a pedestal as to, whoa, Theron, he's from, he's from Russell. But there was almost a sense of, why not me then? If mm. the smallest guy ever to play in the NHL is from my hometown, I've met him, I've shaken his hand. I've seen him stand next to my dad. You know, I know this guy. He knows my name. Why not me? If I'd never met him, there might have always been that real sense of idolizing, being like, well, he's different. I'm not like that. We're not built the same. Well, we are built the same. We're both diminutive in size. But when you want something, like Theron wanted something, he worked harder at developing his hockey skill set that he had maybe more natural giftedness for. But the amount of work that, that man mm. put into developing those skill sets, those innate abilities, far exceeded what regular people put into developing innate skill sets that they might have. His heart is what set him apart from other people. And like Marcus Stroman, another gentleman of diminutive size, he's a pitcher in the majors. Mm. His motto is, height doesn't measure heart. That's uh -huh. his slogan. Mm -hmm. And because he's small and he throws big heat just like the six mm -hmm. foot five guys. Uh -huh. Meeting Theo was a real opportunity for a why not me moment in life. Like, mm. If he can do it, why not me? That provided some legs to my dreams. And I always leaned into I'm from the same place as Theron Flurry. Anything can happen to big people from small towns. So why not me? Aww. Amazing. We could have you here for the rest of the day, I'm sure. <laughs> you are a great speaker. You have a way with words. You've had amazing experiences and mm -hmm. you really have connected with your heart to us today. So thank you for, for sharing, for your insights. Many people will benefit from this conversation. And if somebody wants to hear more, say for speaking or something else, how do people find... John Montgomery. Easy. I live online, as in I have a web address. <laughs> and it's just my name, John, J-O-N, Montgomery.ca. And that will get me. I get all the emails. Nobody else looks at them, gets them, opens them. So they all come direct to me. Perfect. Yes, I definitely recommend anyone hire you for a speaking gig. We've heard you. You're amazing. I did that thing, even though I already knew you and were friends, where I tried to take a sneaky selfie with you in the background while you were speaking and the flash <laughs> was on. Do you remember that? That's so embarrassing. I love it. Anyways. <laughs> And the picture didn't turn out at all. <laughs> I was like, oh, it was good shoot. fodder for it me just... on stage. <laughs> Pump your ego up a little bit. Yep. Well, 
It's been so awesome seeing you again. Say hi to Darla Likewise, and kids. Likewise, you guys. Good to see you. And we've been connecting here. Our words and energies don't need to be in the same physical space to be able to have an impact, feel that connection. So thank you for asking me to be on this great program and hopefully connect with your listeners the same way that I know you guys do with just about everybody that meets you. So thank you. Well, Excellent. thank you. We thank appreciate you, so you coming on. Pleasure, guys. Have a great day. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye, John. Bye. Take care. <laughs> John Montgomery. Oh, man. I love me some John Monty. Oh, he's such a great man. So the first time we met him on The Amazing Race and then hearing his story, meeting him multiple times now, he's so great. So genuine. Mm -hmm. I loved what he had to say today, too. What was your favorite thing, do you think, that he had to say today? He's just on this amazing journey of presence Mm -hmm. and seeking health and meaning and purpose and passion. All these lessons that he's learned along the way of becoming an Olympian and then being the host of Canada's most watched TV show, he's got skills, mm-hmm. he's got presence, and it's just really nice to hear how he thinks and some of the mindset that he takes into his life. Yes, I agree. Wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah, and then for him speaking about his big obstacle and what he learned from it, that big piece of you can win one Olympics and get gold medal, but take a big risk, and then take a big risk and not get the medal. Not qualify for the Olympics. Yeah. So the big lesson there, the obstacle of not winning, has helped him in life to see that polarity, to see how he can continue to take risks and move into his future. So it was really good to hear his opinion on obstacles and really him saying that he doesn't think that people can really have success or go to that next level without some of that struggle. Thanks again, John, for coming on our show. It's great to have you here. You made us laugh a few times. Thanks, sir. (laughs) We love to laugh. Thanks so much, friend. Talk to you soon. And to everyone else, until next time, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Leading to Tokyo 2021, this podcast will be focusing on the stories of elite athletes. If you or someone you know has overcome obstacles on your quest for world-class competition and you'd like to be on our show, please find us at obstaclesandopportunities.com and reach out. Our podcast social media handles are at obsopspod. That is O-B-S-O-P-S-P-O-D. And our personal handles are at Julie Lowell Can. J-U-L-I-E-L-O-W-E-L-L-C-A-N. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.